Late last week, I spoke to Rianne Gallagher, who is the Robert Burns Fellow for 2018 at the University of Otago. Rianne is a poet. Her first book of poems is titled Saltwater Creek, which was published in London and shortlisted for the 2003 Ford, Ford Prize for First Collection. In New Zealand, she's won um, a Canterbury History Foundation Award in 2007 and wrote Feeling for Daylight, the Photographs of Jack Adamson, which is a non-fiction biography published by the South Canterbury Museum. She also won the New Zealand Post Book Award for Poetry in 2012 for her second poetry collection, Shift. In 2016, she collaborated with artist Lynn Taylor and Wataku Press printer-in-residence Sarah Smith uh, to publish poems on the life and activities of Frida Dufar, um, who lived between the years of 1882 and 1935. She was the first woman to climb Auraki Mount Cook. Um, so this is a very, very much an honour for her to to um, be awarded the Burns Fellowship. Um, she is a resident at the university at the moment and will be primarily writing poetry during her residence. I got the chance to catch up to her. Catch up to her. I am always catching up to people. <laughs> catching up with her uh, late last week. We had uh, some technical issues in the real nice recording room that we've got at Radio 1. So in this recording, you might hear, you know, the highway outside every once in a while. You might hear a few sirens. You might hear some cars or some squeaking of the chairs or whatever. It's all part of the fun. It's all part of the, the rough and ready interview situation. It's like really being in the field. Um, but we still got a wonderful interview out of Rianne. It's around about half an hour long, so if that's not your kind of thing, that's totally fine. Um, but this is quite a comprehensive interview of our wonderful Robert Burns Fellow for 2018. Of course, there was a panel at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery um, with all five of the Arts Fellows but I don't believe that it was comprehensive enough in terms of uh, what the fellows were actually producing during their residencies um, and what really drove them to create and what is driving them to create during this time period that they are settled in Dunedin. Um, so I'm very lucky to have had uh, four of them in conversation with me of late. It's very, very exciting for me and they're all very wonderful, interesting people to talk to. So without further ado, this this is a pre-recorded interview with Rianne Gallagher, the 2018 Robert Burns Fellow. For joining me in the studio today, Rianne Gallagher, the Robert Burns Fellow for 2018. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for coming in and chatting. Um, I saw you speak at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery panel that was a couple of weeks ago. Do you feel as though you got across what you needed to say about the fellowship when you were on that panel a few weeks ago? Um, well, I wasn't sure what to expect mm -hmm. from the panel. I think they were kind of looking at, or the questions were more about process. Um, so I, I didn't go in wanting to have, you know, to get anything particularly across mm. so much as just try and engage with the questions and with the, you know, the other fellows. Yeah. yeah. And was that a comfortable experience for you? Because I realise <laughs> it's a lot of introverted arts practitioners on a public panel. How did you find that? Oh, those things are uh, 
they can be a bit nerve-wracking just the idea of them mm. more than the actual reality in the end um, yeah but it is always crossing a border to go from your kind of interior practice to go and then try and um, speak about it publicly yeah yeah so that's um, yeah and you're right I mean I'm more of an introvert than, a, than an extrovert that's for sure that came across on the panel it was very sweet and speaking of your interior practice could you give us a wee bit of a history in terms of your work as a poet Um, well in terms of published work I mean it depends where you start in terms of your history as a poet but um, in terms of published work I guess um, before I I left New Zealand in 1987. Prior to that, um, I had, I'd been writing poetry and um, started taking it seriously, um, and had some things published in magazines here. But um, it was really in the UK where I um, started to get more work published in journals and magazines and. Uh, was part of a ongoing workshop um, and then built up enough work to consider putting a manuscript together. Oh, wonderful. So, so, so yeah, and so my first collection was published in, in London. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And in the panel, you also mentioned a Roman Catholic upbringing as yeah. well and maybe some difficulties learning when you were a bit younger. Yeah. How did you find that poetry became that outlet when you were perhaps struggling with learning when you were a bit younger? Um, well, it really influenced my relationship to language. Mm. So as a kid, I had difficulty learning to read. Um, yeah, and I think I said that, you know, on the panel that... Um, uh, the day you know learning to read open I never took language for granted mm. so um, uh, it was like that moment of learning to read which was literally a moment it was like um, opening up a whole another world really um, mm. and and I never quite lo- I've never quite lost that mysteriousness around language mm. in my relationship to it so, um, yeah, and I still have hangovers from learning. You know, I get words confused. I um, forget what a word looks like. Uh, so then I spend time looking through a dictionary and get lost in the dictionary for a while. So, <laughs> How does that end up influencing the work that you, you produce? Um... I think the concentration on individual words, you know, that uh, poetry allows you to have, mm. and also because I don't always have in a conventional way of looking at words. Um, so there's a lot of playfulness mm-hmm. that can come in. Uh, uh, yeah, and I'm just, I'm still fascinated, I mean really fascinated by the sound of words, um, the way that meanings can change in different contexts, the, um, and metaphor, you know, 
because uh, that was another thing as a kid, really, being introduced to metaphor, yeah. which, which seemed uh, that was another kind of magical moment because um, to discover that you could say something and it could mean the thing that you said, mm. but it could also have another meaning. And uh, you mentioned the sound of the words as well. Do you ever perform your poetry as spoken word? I do readings, okay. yeah. Um, I'm not a performance poet mm. as such. Uh, the sound of a poem is very important uh, to me when I'm actually writing. So quite early on I will be, um, you know, saying the, saying the poem out loud mm. to try and get... It really helps to get this marriage of uh, the, the kind of content to the form. I guess, and trying to find the rhythms and how that fits in with the emotional line of the poem. Mm. So, yeah. Is that part of the process in isolation for you? Do you ever work in collaboration with anyone else? Not in the writing. Okay. No, no. Although you feel, you know, I read a lot of poetry. Mm. Um, and I think if you're working as a poet and you read a lot, you are almost in collaboration with all that you've read mm. to some degree yeah. you know you're in you're in conversation with um, uh, poetry that's come before poetry that you love yeah you know, so who were your earliest influences uh, influence is a tricky thing to diagnose yourself I think um, but in New Zealand, before I left New Zealand, uh, Janet Frame and Jake, um, James Baxter. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and then have those influences changed over time? Do you have different poets that you admire now to back when you first started writing poetry? Oh, sh sure. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't changed in the sense that I, I still love very much uh, yeah. Frame and Baxter and go back to them. Um, yeah. But... Like, for, at the moment, um, you know, there's a number of poets who have become kind of touchstone poets while I'm working on this Seacliff material, mm. you know. Um, and one individual collection in particular, which is Fire Songs by David Hasnett, which was published about three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and that collection, I, I kind of uh, come to it when I was trying to to think of a ways of approaching the Seacliff material. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a brilliant single volume that um, uh, moves from, this is Hasin's work, it moves mm -hmm. from the um, historic to the personal to the environmental and um, a real elemental power in the language. Um, yeah, I was blown away, blown away by it. And it was the scope actually of that book yeah. that um, really changed some of my thinking about how to approach the Seacliff stuff. And that Seacliff work is what you're working on during your fellowship at the university, is that correct? Yeah, I mean it's dominated the first part of the fellowship. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, and what is that centering around? What are the ideas in the Seacliff material? Um, well, it's the early history of the Seacliff Asylum. Um, and I'm looking particularly at um, that in relation to er, um, early Irish migrants mm -hmm. um, who were for a period overrepresented 
in the in the asylum. Yeah. But really, my starting point was was way back, and that was the land itself, which okay. yeah, I kind of encountered the Seacliff site just by chance, but it left a real impression. Mm. Whereabouts is the Seacliff site? Um, you know, it's just uh, north of Dunedin, mm -hmm. round past you know the Warrington. Around that coast, okay. coast right. Bit. Yeah, and I mean, your surname Gallagher is that the connection to the Irish migrants? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my father was born in Donegal mm -hmm. and came out uh, when he was twenty-five. So oh, wow. yeah, so I spent time in Donegal. Um, oh, fantastic! Yeah, and in terms of the fellowship. Um, do you just want to explain a wee bit about the history of the Robert Burns Fellowship because that is you are the fellow for 2018 what is your understanding of that history um, goodness I haven't got a detailed history no, of that's, the fellowship that's fine. That's yeah fine. but um, my understanding is that it was started by a group that uh, and the f figure at the center of that was Charles Brash mm -hmm. um, uh, and and it's an endowed, I think it's an endowed fellowship, so it's not subject to, you know, it's kind of uh, protected mm. in that way. Um, yeah, and just, I think Brash, uh, you know, was amazing in the way that he himself didn't have to worry about money. Yeah. But really had an empathy with writers, poets, uh, uh, who were trying to develop work and, you know, just having to earn a living at the same yeah. time, uh, uh, the pressure of that. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I, I think he, he was kind of amazing in that way. And what kind of space has this fellowship afforded you now that you get paid to be a poet for an entire year? How has that changed your practice? Actually, space is a good word because mm -hmm. the spaciousness of the fellowship has um, made such a huge difference. And actually, I don't know under the normal run of things whether I would, would have been able to tackle the Seacliff stuff because mm. it's a great deal to hold. Yeah. Um, and so just not having not having the pressure of earning a living at mm. the same time um, and being able to sit with material and um, knowing you know I have got time for this yeah and uh, being able to approach it in different ways to try and find openings mm. um, without feeling like you know that uh, it just takes it takes it takes pressure off the notion of being productive yeah yeah, um, yeah. and does that mitigate that commercial side of of publishing and producing poetry as a, as a living as well have you ever felt that pressure before when you're trying to earn the money and there's that pressure either from publishers or from yourself where you're needing to earn that income, you're needing to earn that money and it changes what you end up producing? 
I've never had the pressure of earning a living from poetry. Okay. Because you don't earn a living from poetry. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, it's more about the, the squeezing of time between writing time, earning a living time, and just living mm -hmm. time, you know. Um, and, and, yeah, so, and it, you, you do, I've not experienced pressure from publisher except when you get to the point of um, having a manuscript accepted mm -hmm. and then doing final changes um, and then already having put it into some publication schedules that you are trying to meet, but that's, that's very much towards the end yeah. of everything. So um, I think otherwise the, um, the kind of pressures you put on yourself for being productive, mm. yeah. And in terms of getting manuscripts published, what are some of the difficulties that you've had to overcome during your time producing poetry that perhaps younger poets who are, who are now the kind of emerging generation might have to go through when they're trying to get their work published as well? Yeah, well, what, I, what I've said to a couple of poets who I've, I've, I've watched develop you know, and try, trying to get through that gateway is actually the, the, the track you take towards getting published is very individual. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, you can think of, I can think of um, uh, the slightly conventional things, you know, that you need to build up uh, a good body of work that is strong and one of the ways of kind of having conf some confidence about the strength of the work is getting it published in magazines and journals because mm -hmm. at least then you know you know that eyes have read the work and have felt it to be um, you know uh, have wanted to ha wanted to publish it mm -hmm. so so that can be one way of building up um, yeah and then it's uh, I, I think the process is very organic, actually. You know, there's no formulaic way of developing because it's it's not career where you look and think, oh yes, I just need to do this and this and this. Um, the career is inside you mm -hmm. as well. So there's things that happen on, in the outside world with your work but it, as much as anything it's about developing your relationship to the work and evolving that in, inside mm. so yeah so th that's where I feel the best outcome is when that, evol that evolution that's going on inside of you marries to things that are happening in the outside world mm. and and that's wonderful. And yeah. those moments when that happens um, can, yeah, they're really, they're, they're quite rare, I think, but yeah. they can be um, just uh, give you the sense of, of a kind of yes. <laughs> Do you know of any magazines or journals that are accessible for emerging poets um, that might be in Dunedin or in New Zealand that people could have a look at if they're wanting to get their work published? Well, there's quite a few online that I'm not 
I'm not up to speed with all the ones online, to be honest. Um, but then there's a range of magazines that have been going for a time, like Landfall um, and uh, Takahi. Um, uh, I think Jam is still going mm. and Sport. Oh, of um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then there's, you know, uh, if poets, you know, I think if poets are developing and they have a sense of, you know, for example, if someone is producing work that's more environmental based, then I would just, I would look offshore as well mm. to the States, to Australia. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So um, I think, I think that's a good, that's a good thing. And I see younger poets doing that, yeah. you know. And that is accessible for New Zealand poets as well, yes. in a good way yes, to get, of course. get your name out there. I mean, yes, yeah, yeah, I think so. And in fact, exposing your work uh, to that larger audience is a really good, a good thing. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, you've been working with the English department at the university. Do you think once the fellowship's over, you're going to continue your work with that department? Because I know some of the previous fellows have kind of stayed on in that department and, and helped bring through the next generation of writers or whatever it may be. Do you think you'll continue working with the English department? Uh, well, I don't know if I have been working with the English department. Exactly. Have you been? Is your office within the English department? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's as far as that goes. <laughs> I mean, I've I've had it. You know, uh, I've had interaction with some of the students. A, a group of third year. Um, oh, fantastic. Medical students who were doing just as one elective, I think, uh, poetry paper, and I've got coming up um, another kind of seminar with um, postgraduate students mm. who are specifically writing poetry okay so um, but for myself I've I've actually most of my uh, actual writing I haven't done in the office because okay. I found um, yeah where do you go to write uh, well I tend to I've tended to write at home and then use the office as a place to um, you know do the printing and things like that. Mm. Um, yeah, I just found an office for writing poetry. It, it wasn't kind of how I work, mm. I guess. Um, I just need to be a lot more, you know, in a space where I'm not self-conscious about uh, anything. Yeah. Does your environment really, um, does it end up affecting what you produce in the end as well? Um, I hope not. You hope not? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's more about not so much what I produce, but mm. that I actually am writing. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, has the reception to your poetry been different all over the world? Have you found that the New Zealand reception has been different to, say, the UK? Or is it pretty similar across the board? Or do you avoid that altogether? Do you yeah, not... no, that's interesting, you know, because... Uh, um, when I was in the UK, I was seen as being a New Zealand poet living <laughs> in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then when I was trying to get my first book published, um, I tried a couple of publishers here from the while I was still in the UK, mm -hmm. and one of them said, "Well, 
uh, yes, we'd like to publish it, but you're going, we, we, we need you to come back to New Zealand <laughs> to do that. So, because of promoting the book and stuff. Um, so then, yeah, so then I got it published in, in London. So I, I think if you have time out of the country, um, sometimes people can end up between two stalls. So the you know, sometimes you're a New Zealand poet and sometimes you're not quite a New Zealand poet. <laughs> and yeah. Um, but now I feel, I do, I do feel very much back here. Okay. Yeah. How long did you spend away from New Zealand? 18 years. 18 years. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So essentially you were kind of not so much the New Zealand poet living in the, in the UK anymore at that point, I'd, I'd think, after 18 years. Yeah, Gosh, a long time. but these things stick, yeah. you know, and we do it in New Zealand as well. We, yeah. we like to, you know, I'm slightly resistant to it, but, you know, they, they say oh, it's a Dunedin poet or mm. a Christchurch poet or a Wellington poet or an Auckland poet. Yeah. And, um, and then lots of ideas go around this notion of being... Yeah, are there different uh, expectations for those different regions? Well, I think, I just think New Zealand's too small to have, to have this, mm. you know, because um, the community is kind of too small. But we still do it, mm. you know. It's a, I guess it's just one way of, of, of locating someone. Yeah. <laughs> And in terms of the fellowship, at this point in time, how many months down in the fellowship are you now? Uh, just uh, over six. Over six, so yeah. about halfway into the yeah. fellowship. Yeah, no, past, just past the halfway Just past mark. the halfway point. Yeah. And have you achieved as much, I don't know if achieved is, is the correct word in terms of your, your own practice, but have you um, achieved or, or produced enough work, or do you feel like you're at the right point you know, in, within the fellowship, is there lots more that you want to get done in the next six months? Where are we on the timeline at the moment? Um, well, the, f the first months were, were very immersive. So I did, I did produce, um, you know, more work than in that period of time than uh, I've ever had the experience of doing in my life wow. before. So, you know, just because it was... Um, I've not had that time like that mm. before. So, and then I I surfaced around June and stumbled around for a bit, um, and and now um, I I've started to put some of the work together. I wasn't even thinking manuscript at the beginning, okay. really, but I've started to put some of the work together. So mm. now I can see. Um, some of the things that I would like to be able to produce in the in the second mm. part of the year. Yeah, what's the intended outcome by the 12 months, by the end of the 12 months? Yeah, well that's, I mean ideally I guess uh, a finished or a close to okay. or a manuscript yeah. um, uh, and that would be great if I can manage to get get that done but I still and postponing thinking about the outcome, or mm. uh, trying to do that, yes. yeah, <laughs> because it can put too much pressure on what you're doing right now, mm. right this minute, yeah. you know. Um, and I still, 
I've had the experience in the first half of the year of what that space, what a difference that space makes mm. in terms of what I produce. So just holding on to some of that, mm. um, yeah. Yeah, and I guess the more prophetic question that kind of goes beyond the, the actual fellowship itself, but what difference do you believe poetry makes to the world? And this is not just New Zealand, this is just globally. What do you think the difference has been? That poetry makes. Yeah, that yeah. poetry makes. Well, I have tended to work as a lyric poet, you know, and that, um, a, a quick definition of a lyric poem is is kind of the intellect uh, fusing with the emotion mm. uh, in a way that seems kind of effortless and I think poetry um, speaks in a way that none of the other genres speak mm. um, we uh, we tend to slow down when we read a poem uh, and the difference, I don't know altogether what difference, you know, in terms of your thinking politics or um, <laughs> uh, what, what poetry does, but it, it is a voice. Yeah. Uh, and, it's a, and it's that emotional intellect combining um, that singular voice speaking um, that moves and um, uh, it's not it's not like informing it's not information like we get overload with information mm. I think it's the pause of poetry and the way that it can move go go to the heart so um, yeah and uh, I don't know, it's um, it's the form too that we go to, you know, uh, at times, I mean just generally I think people go to poetry at times in their lives when they're almost trying to hear themselves, you know, and find, find something in poetry um, that you know it comes as oh yes i i understand that mm. i feel that um i mean it's very powerful i think poetry it's kind of solitary and um singular and and also it's worldwide yeah you yeah. know uh that's that's what I love. I love reading poetry from poets all over the world, um, and just discovering that that that's another way of saying that thing. Because you know, if you think about some of the themes of poetry, it's there's a commonality sometimes, but there's always new ways of saying always, and you know, love, death loss, birth, celebration, joy, uh, pain, anger, all of these things mm. can be embodied in, in, in poetry that are new ways. Uh, yeah. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today in the studio. Rianne Gallagher, the Robert Burns Fellow for 2018. And that was Rianne Gallagher, as I just said, me from a week ago, past me, told you that that was Rianne Gallagher, 2018 Robert Burns Fellow. If you missed any of that interview, or if there was anything from that that you ever wanted to refer back to, these all get podcasted at r1.co.nz.